Friends, good morning. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres, and we're glad that you all are with us for our Summer Sunday School series. I've tried to get more S's into that, Summer Sunday School series, but, but that's, I'm, I'm with four right now. But in either case, I'm glad that you all are here uh, as we gather together in this nine-week study of some of the great figures of the Old Testament, particularly those figures that we encounter in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is often known as the Pentateuch. And we've looked at figures ranging from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, uh, who else we've looked at, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and a number of different others. And this, in our seventh week of this series, we're going to turn uh, to the book of uh, Exodus, really in a, in a variety of other books, and we're going to look at Aaron, the brother of Moses, and a group of individuals known as the Levites. So this is the seventh in our nine-part series. If you've missed earlier weeks in this series, don't worry. Each week stands on its own, so you won't be left out of the, the conversation. If you want to catch up on some of the previous studies, you can either subscribe to First Pres on iTunes and get all of the past Sunday School classes downloaded to your phone or tablet or computer along with the sermons uh, each week, or you can go onto the Learn link of our homepage and to Sunday School Curriculum, and there you can access all of the Prezi slides for this uh, series as well as also all of the audio lectures. Before we jump in to our quiz, because you know we always begin with a quiz in this class, before we jump to the quiz, I want to introduce someone who's going to be co-teaching with me this week and next week, uh, Lydia Foreman. Come on up, Lydia. Lydia Foreman is uh, the new intern in teaching and theological education here at First Pres Church. Lydia is finishing up her master's in theological studies at Columbia uh, Seminary, currently this semester even, uh, with a focus in Old Testament, which of course is good news in my book. Um, we're excited to have Lydia on board. I've had her in a number of different classes that I've taught at Columbia, and she's one of the finest seminary students that I've had the chance to work with, so for that, we are grateful that you're here. Lydia has also served as a, a TA for me as I've taught Hebrew, and she did a great job with that, and was an editor of a recent book that I was able to publish. And I can say without any hesitation that that book would not have gotten published without Lydia's help. So I, for all those reasons, I'm grateful for Lydia and excited to have her and her talents and her passions here at First Pres. Lydia was born in Panama, not Panama City, apparently, but Panama. Um, uh, she was the daughter, or is the daughter, of a doctor in the Air Force, so she moved around quite a bit. In her early life, her family eventually settled in the Chattanooga area, area where she grew up, uh, went to high school, and eventually went to UGA as an undergrad. Uh, Lydia and her husband, John, have been in Atlanta for about 10 years. They live in Avondale Estates, which is just east of Decatur, uh, with their three kids, Sinjin, who's nine, Abe, who's six, and Roger, who's four. And you might see those little ones running around here at church from time to time in the morning. Um, Lydia uh, was, um, oh, I should just say Lydia is, a, is a, an outdoor enthusiast, an avid hiker, and she makes all of her boys go hiking with her, which I'm tremendously impressed at. Um, she was also a film studies major, so Lydia is my go-to person to debrief uh, episodes of ser TV series and the like that I often watch. So for all these reasons, we are grateful to have Lydia here. Please welcome her with us this morning. And let me just say one other thing about Lydia. She'll be co-teaching with me this series this week and next week, but she'll also be here with us all year. So if you are a Sunday school leader, a small group leader, and are looking for some help, a guest teacher or a visitor, I highly recommend that you get in touch with Lydia and have her come uh, to your group. She would be an excellent addition, no doubt. So without further ado, let's get started with a quiz. Now, this is just a three-question quiz 
three-question quiz. I've reduced the numbers to help us along a little bit. As you know, these are pointless quizzes, meaning that they are not graded, but they have a great point, and Jesus is watching and listening and knows how you perform. Uh, first question, first question. Which of these common Jewish last names, common contemporary Jewish last names, means priest in Hebrew? Which of these common Jewish last names means priest in Hebrew? Milgram, Cohen, Levine, or Seinfeld? <laughs> Which of these four names in Hebrew means priest? Is the Hebrew word for priest? So I have some Levine reference, uh, votes. B, uh, some Cohen uh, votes. Any Seinfeld votes? Any Milgram votes? No Milgram, no Seinfeld votes. Well, you're right on that score. Seinfeld is a great last name. It just doesn't have to be a Hebrew word for anything. Uh, Milgram is, in fact, a Hebrew word, but it means pomegranate. Nothing to do with a priest. Um, now, what's tricky, actually, is B and C. We're going to meet a group of people called the Levites today. And we're going to find out that the Levites, at least according to some books in the Old Testament, are in fact priests. But there's some complications and controversies about the role of the Levites. And in either case, Levi or Levine is not the word for priest, even though the Levites serve as priests. However, the word Kohen is the word for priest in the Hebrew Bible. Um, a good Hebrew student will tell you that it's an actually a participle. The word priest literally means serving as or acting as a priest. All right, second question in our quiz. Which of the following sons of Jacob does not receive an allotment of land? So remember, the 12 sons of Jacob receive, uh, or, or many of Jacob's sons receive land allotments, and we know them as the 12 tribes of Israel. Which of his sons does not receive an allotment of land? Now, you know from past experience that I am prone to include trick questions as an act of pedagogical sophistication. And I will warn you that this is one of those trick questions. Is it Levi, Joseph, Naphtali, or Reuben? Which of these does not receive land? Levi. Levi. Any dissenting voices? Well, maybe. Right? So Levi does not receive a portion of the land. That is correct. And why doesn't Levi get land, by the way? Because his tribe, his descendants will be priests, and priests do not receive an allotment of the land. Essentially, they are supported by the other tribes. They don't need access to the agricultural production of the land. So this is absolutely correct. Levi does not receive a portion of the land. However, for those of you good Sunday school attenders, or at least you know this from growing up, is Joseph the name of one of the tribes of Israel? No. no. So we have a problem here. There's 12 sons of Israel. At least my math is, is, here's how my math works. There's 12 sons of Jacob. Two of them, Levi and Joseph, are not named as tribes. And yet we know that there are 12 tribes of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. How do you make up for the fact that we lose two tribes here and yet still end up with 12? You can phone a friend. <laughs> Here's how it works. Though Joseph is not a named tribe in the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph receives a double blessing, a double portion of blessing, so much so that his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, receive allotments of land. So you will see in the list of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, 
uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. They basically are the two-part blessing of Joseph. So you lose two, Levi and Joseph, but then you gain two back in the two sons of Joseph. So you end up back with 12 in the end. So that's a little bit of math for you this morning. I think this is the last math that I'll do. Lydia, I'm not sure if you'll do. You come from a math uh, family, so I'm not sure if you'll be doing any calculus or data, but uh, we'll see how that goes. One last question in our quiz, and this is the most ambiguous, uh, uh, but I think also the most important. Which of the following groups from the New Testament, which of the following New Testament groups most closely, uh, I think they uh, correspond most closely to the Old Testament priest? So you're not going to find an Old Testament priest in the New Testament, but you do find other groups that more or less are connected to priestly things. Which of those groups most closely correspond to the Old Testament priest? Is it a rabbi? the scribes, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees? Which of these four groups most closely correspond to the Old Testament priest? Right, have some rabbi votes. How about scribes? Not strong on scribes. What about Pharisees? Some say Pharisees. What about Sadducees? Some say Sadducees. Well, the answer is not altogether clear, but most likely it's the Sadducees, and I'll explain. Some Jewish literature uh, at about the time of Christ speaks of the Sadducees as being priests. Okay? So there is literature that connects the Sadducee party, for lack of a better term, with the priesthood. But it also identifies, that same literature also identifies Pharisees as priests. So both Sadducees can be priests, Pharisees can be priests, at least according to this literature. In fact, um, well, let me just say, none of the texts that we have at our disposal allow us to claim that all priests were Sadducees, or that all Sadducees were priests. So some could be priests, but that's not an exclusive answer. Nevertheless, I still think Sadducees is the best answer. What we can say is that the Sadducean party was based in Jerusalem, and that's where the temple was, and they were the party most closely associated with the temple. What were the Pharisees associated with? It was not the temple. What other institution were the Pharisees? What is it? Uh, the law, conceptually, but actually kind of places or institutions, they're connected to the synagogue. And the Pharisees really are just the precursors to the rabbi. So when you see rabbi, that's really just a, a later version of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the rabbis were connected to the synagogue. They were interested in the law and certain forms of interpretation. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were connected to the temple. The Sadducees were known for things like purity and sort of their rigidity of following the law. So that might also kind of give us a priestly sense of their identity. It's not a perfect answer, but if you're looking for the nearest parallel, it's going to be Sadducees in the New Testament. So I'll let you grade yourselves and submit your answers to me afterwards. But for now, I'm going to turn things over to Lydia, who's going to introduce our keynote figure for the day, Aaron. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, so I didn't realize that I needed to hook this somewhere, so I'm going to leave my mic here, and that's probably why I'll be tethered to this podium. Uh, so yeah, I won't be moving around quite as much. But anyway, so yeah, let's, uh, let's get started on Aaron. I was going to do a little rough sketch on him, because at least when it comes to the priesthood, it all pretty much starts with him, um, and rather fittingly, his name starts with an A, or an Aleph in Hebrew, which by the way, if my Hebrew is terrible, I'm going to blame Ryan, because he taught it to me. No, I'm just kidding. He was a really great teacher, so that I'm just totally kidding. Um, but anyway, all the, all the info on Aaron is actually pretty easy to find because his name does start with an A, and it's, so it's always the first entry in any Bible dictionary that you open. Um, oh, yep, there we go. 
So, so this image here is from uh, St. Catherine's Monastery, in the, which is the traditional uh, site of Mount Sinai, and it's, about, it's like one of the oldest monasteries in the world from about the fourth century. So we first meet Aaron in Exodus 4.14, which we talked about a little bit last week, um, which is the call story of Moses. And Moses is giving a bunch of reasons why, like, he doesn't want to be sent to, back to Egypt. Um, and he's like, don't make me go, don't make me go. And finally he says, can you just please send someone else? And God gets really angry at him for this, um, but he responds, what of your brother Aaron the Levite? And so from this response, we learn two things about Aaron. One, that he's a Levite, which means, as we talked about a little bit earlier, that he's from the family, of, family line of Levi, so he's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And this is a point which we'll get back to a little bit later. But we also learn that he's Moses' brother. Um, Aaron is called this in some other places as well. Um, in Exodus 6, he's listed, they're listed as brothers. And um, in Exodus 7, in the genealogy, they're listed as brothers there too. And there we find out that Aaron is three years older than Moses. Um, however, I think we're still here, yeah. However, it's important to note, here comes the Hebrew, so... Just a warning. It's important to note that the Hebrew word here um, is the word ach, and there's the sort of transliteration of it up there, um, which also can be interpreted like clansmen or fellow countrymen. So that might be what's actually happening here when he says, uh, your brother Aaron the Levite. Because if they're biological brothers, uh, it would kind of been a, a little bit redundant to call him a Levite, because obviously Moses would have been one too. However, if they aren't biological brothers, it would, have been, it would have made more sense to be referring to him as, you know, Aaron, your brother Levite, as in your fellow Levite. So, and, and then also, if we recall from last week, we talked about uh, Miriam. She was sort of our, our main figure last week. Uh, she was introduced in Exodus 15, not as uh, the sister of Moses, but as the sister of, anybody remember? Aaron. And, it's, and Moses was not included in there. So it seems like Miriam and Aaron are definitely siblings, but maybe they're not related to Moses. Um, and later, in later biblical traditions, uh, Miriam, Miriam and Aaron get adopted, so to speak, into the Moses family, which we see in um, Numbers 26 in the, list of, in the genealogy listed there. But in any case, whether Aaron is Moses' biological brother or he's just a fellow Levite, it's definitely clear that he's his partner in ministry, and he's his right-hand man. Uh, right-hand man. Uh, yeah, so in Exodus 4, 15 through 16, uh, God describes how Aaron's going to function, right? He says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. So, Aaron goes with Moses, and he goes and speaks before the people of Israel. He goes and speaks to Pharaoh. Um, and when the Israelites, when they eventually go through the Exodus and they're in the wilderness, you know, the Israelites complain to both Moses and Aaron. So he kind of gets, you know, the bad and the good. And also, when he is, when, the, when uh, they're bringing about the various plagues, it's actually Aaron who stretches out his arm and brings those about uh, most of the time. So Moses ends up getting a lot of the credit for things that Aaron actually does. I like to think, and here's my, here's my movie, my film studies background coming out, but uh, I like to think of Aaron as Moses' stunt double. Because um, that's kind of why he gets hired in the first place, right? Like Moses is really scared, 
And so uh, God suggests Aaron to perform all of his action sequences. Um, but if this were the Oscars, it would be Moses who would be getting, who'd get, who'd be collecting the Oscar. Um, so yeah, Moses gets a lot of the credit, and Aaron kind of is in the uh, background. But the other uh, biological details about Aaron are a little bit sparse. But what's the most important thing to keep in mind is the kind of work that he and his sons are called to do. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We read in Exodus 28 that Aaron and his sons are commissioned to be Israel's priests. It says, Then bring near to you your brother Aaron and his sons with him from among the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Itamar. And we get a similar picture in Numbers uh, 3, 2 through 3, um, where it again lists Aaron's sons, but it adds this interesting language. Um, if you see it on there, it says, yeah, uh, adds that they are ordained to minister as priests. And the language here is really curious. Um, in Hebrew, it's literally whose hands are filled with the priesthood. Um, and the Hebrew is mule, yadam, lakahen. Uh, which means literally to, like, to fill the hand, um, which is a common Hebrew expression for ordination. Um, so what does this idiom mean? Well, there's three possibilities. Um, do I have it? Oh, yeah, fill the hands. Oh, no. I went a little far, but there we go. Yeah, so what does this idiom mean? It could be referring um, to their hands being filled with the responsibility of priesthood. Or it could have been representing the duty and privileges um, the priests had in making uh, offerings on behalf of the people to the Lord. Or, lastly, it could have represented um, that the Lord would be filling their hands in, sense of, in the sense of providing for their material needs since they weren't going to get any land. So um, there's a little background on Aaron, and now uh, Ryan's going to tell us a little bit about who got to be a priest and what that looked like. Yeah, sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She'll be back. She'll be back for more. She'll be back for more. Um, hold your applause. You can always applause for me at any time. Uh, that's okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, really. Um, so, <laughs> I think I heard a hiss out there. Uh, you got to be careful what you're uh, opening yourselves up to. Um, all right, let's say a little bit more about priests. Now, this is, uh, I'm going to ask you a kind of a fourth impromptu quiz question, but I've already kind of given the answer to this, so I should expect a really high performance here. Who can be a priest in ancient Israel? Okay, so you, you does anyone who goes to seminary? Anyone with a master's divinity degree? Do you have to know Greek? Probably have to know Hebrew. But, but who, so who can serve as a priest in the Old Testament? A man, so first off, a man, there are no, uh, and I'm not prescribing this, I'm just describing it. There are no women priests. There's daughters of priests, so we know that they can be married and have kids. But there are no female priests. But what else? Is it sufficient just to be a man? What else do you need? You need to be a Levite. You need to have the right genealogy. You need to have the right genealogy. So by and large, it is not about training. Is not about degrees, it's not about passing certain tests, although we can imagine that there would have been training to become a priest, that certainly would have happened, but the primary qualification is that A, you're a man, B, you are a Levite. So in this particular view, all sons of Levi, that is kind of anyone who can trace their lineage back to that son of Jacob, all sons of Levi not just can be priests, but are priests. So it wasn't as if if Jack's a Levite, he can say, I think I'm going to be a lawyer. 
I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to go to med school. I'm going to be an accountant. That didn't happen. If you were a son of Levi, you were a priest. And if you weren't a son of Levi, you weren't a priest. Even if you were a great preacher or a great reader of Hebrew or so on and so forth. So it was very kind of genealogically described. Um, And in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you get this phrase. And we're going to do a little bit more Hebrew together. Hakohanim, you can hear that, that last name we mentioned earlier, Kohen, remember that from our first quiz section? Hakohanim, that's that Hebrew word for priest, but now it's in the plural, im in Hebrew, sorry, impromptu Hebrew lesson. Uh, im in Hebrew is our, like, our, the way you mark a plural. Um, so Hakohanim Halvi'im, Halvi'im is the Levites. Now the way this phrase, you see this phrase all over in the book of Deuteronomy. And the way that the NRSV typically translates this phrase is something like this, the Levitical priests. What it's essentially doing is it's taking the second phrase, the Levites, and understanding it as an adjective that describes the priests. Now, that's all well and good. Lydia knows, Sarah knows, others who have taken Hebrew in the room knows that this is a, a very sound translation. My problem with it is that if I say Levitical priests, it seems to assume that there could be other types of priests. Well, there could be Aaronid priests and Reubenite priests and Naphtali priests and so on and so forth. And this is not the view of the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, the better way to translate this is to read this second phrase. I'm going to do now a little bit of grammar. Um, how many English teachers out there? Any English teachers? Sometimes you have a few. I'm going to, uh, what, what the grammatical relationship here is not adjectival, but appositional. The second word is an apposition, not opposition with an O, with an A, apposition. The second word is an apposition to the first. And what that means grammatically is that the second word clarifies what the first word means. So a better translation, in my estimation, in the RPV version, is the priests, that is, the Levites. It leaves no room to think that there are priests who aren't Levites. It says, yeah, you know, the, 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 the priests, that is, the Levites. Or it could have been put it the other way around. You know, the Levites, that is, the priests. So it's making an equation between these two groups of people. Is that sufficiently opaque so far? We got it? So priests are Levites, Levites are priests. And of course, what does this mean about Aaron? Walter. Ah. So uh, there's a great question. I'll answer it briefly. A rabbi is not something you find in the Old Testament. Rabbi simply means my teacher. Um, So when Jesus is called Rabboni or something like that, it just means my teacher. It could be a phrase for anyone. Rabbis develop much later, uh, and they become essentially scribes and teachers, but they're associated with the synagogue, not the temple. So they're not associated with kind of the sacrificial system that we typically think of for the temple, the, you know, the cultic dimensions of Israelite faith. So they have more of a teaching scribal uh, dimension. Maybe this is going to be a big stretch, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it, it to kind of map it onto church roles today, I might be more like a rabbi, and Tony and Rebecca might be more like the priests, insofar as they are the ordained kind of functionaries in the church and I have a teaching role in the church. We both do stuff around here, but we do different things. So that, that's a small answer to a good question. Um, so what about Aaron's sons, right? Remember Aaron, as uh, Lydia so helpfully pointed out, is a Levite, right? So what does that mean about Aaron? Is he a priest? Yes, because he's a Levite. What about his sons? Priest. Okay, great. Let's go have coffee. It's all clarified, except for the fact 
that it's the Bible and things are never as simple or straightforward as you would think. This is not the only view in scripture about who can serve as priests. In fact, in other parts of the Bible, in fact, the majority voice in the Bible is that it's not sufficient just to be a Levite to serve as priest. Other parts of the Bible say that you have to be specifically from the branch of the Levite family that is connected to Aaron. So Aaron's a Levite, so all of his uh, sons can serve as priests, but all of Aaron's brothers and kind of other people in that big family tree of Levites, according to certain parts of scripture, even though they are Levites, they can't serve as priests. So there's only a particular branch of the Levite family that is worthy for priesthood. Uh, the priestly office, that is, was restricted. In fact, uh, in the book of Leviticus, we find a parallel phrase to that one that I described earlier as that says uh, the priest that is the Levites. It's beni ha'aron. This is that word for Aaron, ha'kohanim. And this typically means the priests, that is, the sons of Aaron. So uh, Deuteronomy says all priests are Levites, but Leviticus says all priests are Aaron's son or Aaronids. Okay, so it's restricting the sense of priesthood. I know this is getting a little bit more complicated. In the, in the, so in the book of Leviticus and other books that take up this view, what about the other Levites? What about Levites who aren't sons of Aaron? What do they do? How do we consider them? Well, I'm glad you asked. They, uh, you were asking in your heads, I could tell. Um, essentially, in other books like Chronicles and Leviticus, Levites are still associated with the temple, but they're essentially acolytes. Or to use my Catholic language from, from growing up, they're altar boys. They do all of the kind of not so important stuff, but the real priestly things are reserved for the sons of Aaron. So they're connected to the priesthood, but they've been demoted, if you will. They don't do the most important work of the priesthood. So you guys with me so far? In some books, all Levites are priests. In other books in the Old Testament, it's just one branch of that Levite family that actually serves as a priest. Clear enough? That's a great question. The question um, is, who makes these distinctions? Well, as will become clear as we go on, what we find in the Bible um, is a witness to the fact that in history, there were competing perspectives on this. There was not one unanimous view that we find in the Old Testament. There are some people who thought one way, all Levites are priests, and other people said, no, uh, 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 you need to be a specialized Levite to be a priest. And what's interesting about our scripture is that we find both of those witnesses together, and sometimes side by side. It's as if the, the final editors of our Bible didn't say, we need to clean things up and give one answer. They kind of said, you know, there are multiple views about this stuff in our, our community. Let's let both views stand. That actually might be the, the big takeaway lesson of, of this thing, is that they were comfortable with a diversity of views on this sort of thing. Uh, and we'll say more, Caroline, about kind of how these views develop or where we see them in interaction. Cassandra, did you have a question? Mm -hmm. So they were given, that's a great question. The question is, well, how, you know, the Levites still didn't have land, even if they were altar boys. Well, they would have been paid, they would have been provided for, just like the priests would have been, but in status, they would have definitely been a notch lower. So they would have been taken care of, but not having the same kind of prestige in society. We'll take one more, Lucretia. 
no, no, good question. So, for, so the same thing applies to the sons of Aaron. If you're a son of Aaron, you're a priest. If you're a priest, you're a son of Aaron. It, there wasn't a lot of choice in the matter. This is precisely one of the reasons why we might have controversies about who can serve as priests. Because if all Levites can be priests, you might have way more people than you need to actually serve as priests. So, but if you limit it to the Aaronids, that at least helps you a little bit uh, in, the, in, the, in the issue. So let, let's go on, because I want to move off of Lucretia's question to do one other wrinkle, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Lydia. And, and that is... Um, so, so we're at the point where we think, okay, all sons of Aaron, at least in one view, can be priests. But even again further, there's complications. Because it seems to be that uh, through time there, de there develops an idea that only certain sons of Aaron can be priests. Right? So there's a first... Now, I know that this would never happen in your families. That certain branches of your larger family name are seen to be kind of more prestigious. Or, I know, of course, this would never happen in, in our times, in our families, but it does here. Now, Aaron, as Lydia told us, has four sons. Um, two of them, and I'm not going to go into detail in the story, but two of them, uh, the first two, Nadab and Abihu, they die uh, for, because they offered what the NRSV calls strange fire. They do something wrong. It's not totally clear what they did wrong, but they do something wrong, and they get swallowed up uh, into the earth, actually. So that leaves, so that takes care of them. Uh, then there's two sons left, uh, Eleazar and Ithamar. Um, and a question arises, well, about which of these two sons are going to be the true priest? Well, in Numbers 20, when Aaron dies, um, there's this text that very briefly describes his death. And it says that his priestly vestments, kind of the priestly garbs uh, that he wore, were passed on not to Ithamar, but rather to Eleazar. Now, that doesn't mean that Ithamar and his sons couldn't be priests, but we see the beginning of a certain privileging of one son over the others. And this actually becomes important, uh, and I'll close on this, a um, little bit later on. Let me take you to some interesting priestly politics that happened during the time of David. Now, if you remember the story about David, David uh, basically creates Jerusalem as a capital city for uh, the new monarchy of Israel. And he chooses Jerusalem quite shrewdly because Jerusalem was essentially between the northern half of Israel and the southern half of Israel. It was essentially neutral ground. Think of it as kind of like Washington, D.C. So it was like, well, the north couldn't claim it, the south couldn't claim it. So it was kind of politically advantageous to say, okay, I'm going to have the temple in my uh, uh, palace in Jerusalem, in this neutral place. But then David has to say, well, do I choose a northern priest or a southern priest? Now, again, I know this would never happen today that in politics we would think about geography or where people come from or their views, but it, but it did back then. Um, and so David says, okay, I'm going to play things safe. I'm going to get a northern priest, and I'm going to get a southern priest, and they're going to share the responsibilities. They're going to share the responsibilities. So David gets Zadok, a southern priest, and Abiathar, a northern priest, to share the responsibilities. And everything is happy, uh, happily ever after until David dies, and his son, blank, takes over, who takes over from David. Solomon takes over, and with Solomon, things change. In Solomon's reigns, Zadok is seen as good, and Abiathar is seen as bad. In fact, Abiathar, that northern priest, gets exiled, and Zadok alone serves as priest. So this delicate balance of priestly politics that David maintains, uh, Solomon, his son, does away with. Now, why? Why, why? why have this happen? Well, there's two answers. Well, politically... Um, Abiathar packed, 
uh, backed Adonijah. So there's a lot of names here. Uh, Solomon had a rival to the throne, another son of David, kind of like competed with Solomon for the throne, Adonijah. And Abiathar mistakenly backed Adonijah, whereas Zadok backed Solomon. So there was just a political reason. You don't give a, a, a plum cabinet appointment to the person who backed the, uh, the person you ran against for office. So there's just a practical reason. But later, it's explained this way. It turns out, as we learn from genealogies in the book of Chronicles, that Zadok was, could trace his lineage to Eleazar. Remember, he was one of the sons of Aaron. But Abiathar, he could trace his lineage to Ithamar. So in the perspective of the Bible, the reason you choose Zadok is because he was from the proper part of Aaron's family. So we're seeing all of these divisions about who can serve as priests. In one vision, all Levites are priests. In another vision, only Aaronids can be priests. And still in another vision, only sons of Aaron through um, Eleazar can serve as priests. These three perspectives, there's actually a fourth that I'm not going to mention this morning, but these three perspectives are all woven together in Scripture and end up creating this complicated portrait of priestly lineage. To see how some of this, because con- some of this controversy gets played out, and you see kind of Aaronids and Levites uh, kind of being pitted against each other, to show a good example of that, I'm going to turn it back over to Lydia for one of my favorite texts in the book of Exodus. Brian gave me the juicy, the juicy stuff, so I'm really excited about that. <laughs> so uh, the story he's referring to is um, Aaron and the golden calf, which is how we're mostly familiar with that. But we like to refer to it as calf gate. Um, so here's what happens. Uh, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving uh, laws from God. And it's taking a really long time for him to come down. Um, if you're reading the book, like we are, we know that Moses will be on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights because it tells us that in Exodus 24, 18. But the Israelites don't know that. Um, and so they're wondering, like, what happened to our leader? Is he, is he coming down again? Did he die? Like, what's happening? Uh, so the text says, um, the people gather around, and in parentheses I have against because the, uh, the Hebrew word there is all, which often, at least in my homework, I always translate that as against. Uh, they could be gathering against Aaron and saying, come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron gathers their earrings and their other gold trinkets, and he melts it down, and he pours it into a mold and creates an image of a gold calf, right? So the people see it, and they say, uh, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we might be tempted to remember that as Aaron saying that, but it's, it's nice to remember that it's actually the people that say that. These are your gods. Um, but anyway, Aaron builds an altar. Uh, they make sacrifices, and they have a party. But back on, back on Mount Sinai, God catches wind of this, and he immediately orders to go down and to deal with these corrupt people. And this is where it gets interesting. So... We know how the biblical author is viewing this, right? Like, what have the people done wrong? Any guesses? Right. They're, they've violated the first commandment. They've committed idolatry. But is that really what's happening? Um, first of all, just to go back to the text, how is the, I don't know if I have it up there, but if, and does anybody remember how the, vest, the festival is described? Aaron calls it a festival to which God? 
He says it's to Yahweh. He says, we're going to have a festival for Yahweh. So the people think they're worshiping Yahweh, which is kind of curious, right? Uh, so another thing to keep in mind here, um, this is in regards to the statue itself. Um, while it's true that Egyptians represented their deities in animal forms, many of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors uh, actually depicted their gods and goddesses in human form, and often they would be standing on an animal. So on the left, that's correct, left, yes. On the left here, I have a picture of an Egyptian king kneeling before Apis, the bull, and that's him worshiping his god. But on the right, I have an example of this totem animal, which is what I'm, I'm thinking that might be the case here. It's Hadad, the storm god, riding on a bull. See how he's, let me zoom in a little bit. He's on top of this bull, and that's the deity. So it's possible that the golden calf here in Exodus could be an image of a false god, which is what we traditionally interpret it as. But it's also possible that this calf was supposed to be a mount or a pedestal for Yahweh, the invisible deity, which is similar to how the cherubim functioned under the Ark of the Covenant. But with these things in mind, it seems to be not so much that these are images of foreign gods. They're still worshiping Yahweh. But the problem here is not about whom they're worshiping, but the manner in which they're worshiping. But in any case, God is ready to wipe them out, every last one, and start over. And God doesn't even want to claim these people as his own. Actually, here he says, when he's talking to Moses, your people have acted perversely. So he is mad. Um, but Moses intervenes here, and he says, uh, he implores to God, he says, look, you don't want to do this. It's going to hurt your international reputation. This is, this is bad PR, God. Uh, the people in Egypt are going to see what you did, and he's gonna, they're going to be like, God brought his people out of slavery just to kill them in the wilderness? Um, that was great. Um, and then I think Moses makes a really good point. He says, if you kill this people, what about the promises you made to Abraham? Um, so he reminds him of his covenantal duties. And apparently Moses was a good defense attorney because God relents and changes his mind. It's a pretty big deal if you can, God changes his mind, but... Anyway, Moses is still really mad. He's upset with the people, and he's including Aaron. So he comes down. He uh, sees the people dancing around the golden calf. He throws down the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and he confronts Aaron. And he says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Moses is blaming Aaron here, and Aaron does not come clean. Um, Aaron says, don't let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are bent on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of, here, become of him. So Aaron is blaming the people. And here we kind of hear the, the echoes of uh, back in Genesis of Adam saying, that woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. And I kind of wonder by uh, Aaron quoting uh, the people here, talking about how Moses took so long, I kind of wonder if he's kind of getting a subtle dig at Moses, kind of like, kind of your fault. Like, if you hadn't taken so long, like, this wouldn't happen. But, uh, so, but it gets worse, and here's what Aaron says. He says, <laughs> he says, So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off, and they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Like, crazy, huh? Um, which is like, what? Like, you didn't create a mold first and, like, actually cast this, this golden calf yourself? Um, it kind of reminds me, like Ryan said, I have three children, um, three boys. 
and Legos are really hard to contain in my house. So whenever we, I go in my boys' rooms and I'm like, how do these Legos get everywhere? Because like, they're not just a few of them, it's the entire tub is all over the floor. And I'm like, how did this happen? And they're like, I don't know. Like I just, we were playing with them and I looked up and all of a sudden they were just everywhere. It's like, no, like there has to be an agent involved here. Like this did not happen on its own. But anyway, Aaron, I'm likening Aaron to my children. So, but that's kind of how the, uh, the biblical author is making Aaron look here. He's making him look really bad. Um, so conversely, we should note who looks good in this story. So as the story concludes, uh, Moses stands up and says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And I don't know if you remember, but do you remember who comes? Who responds? It's the Levites. So all, it says all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And then they go through the camp, and they kill everybody who had worshipped the golden calf. So rather than being condemned for murder, Moses actually praises them. And he says, today you have ordained yourselves, and there's that language of filling the hand that we talked about earlier. You've ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves today. Whoa, okay. But um, so this really becomes a story about the superiority of the Levites over Aaron. So just to give an example, a quick example of the opposite of this, um, in number 16, we see, yeah, we see the opposite happening. Aaron is the one who ends up outranking the Levites. And I don't know if you remember this story. It's, it's a great story. Um, here's a plug for reading the Old Testament. But this one doesn't get as much of attention normally, but it's cool. Um, in this story, Korah, the great-grandson of Levi, joins 250 others and challenges Moses and Aaron. It's a long story. Go home and read it. But ultimately what happens is God sides with Moses and Aaron, and the earth swallows up, literally, swallows up Korah and the other rebels. And the story concludes with Moses telling Eleazar, Aaron's son, to take the fire censers that belong to the rebels and to hammer them into plates and to make a covering for the altar to serve as a reminder to the Israelites that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron shall approach to offer incense before the Lord. And then in the following chapter, in number 17, we get an even clearer, if it wasn't already clear, this makes it even more explicit. Um, I don't know if you remember, but Moses gathers all the staffs from the different tribes um, that represent all the 12 tribes. And God tells him, he says, whichever staff that buds will indicate the one who's chosen to be priest. So pretty clear. I'd love to be that certain about things in life, but, you know. But anyway, his staff, uh, so whose staff ends up being the one that produces a bud? It's Aaron's. So again, in this, in this story, we get a clear indication that it's Aaron and his descendants who are the true proprietors of the priestly office. So again, we can definitely see in these two stories just like a little glimpse of how serious this priestly rivalry was. And, you know, people, people lost their lives over it. So it's like, it's serious business. But anyway, I'm going to turn it back to Ryan. So conclude. Sure. Thanks, Lydia. Sure. <clears throat> so you can, Lydia's given us a great example of how there, there are these different stories in Scripture uh, that, that pit the Levites and the Aaronids against each other. Or at least they show in some cases Aaron looking really bad and the Levites rising to the occasion and other... Uh, instances, it's the Levites who look not so good, and it's Aaron who is praised and elevated. So you can kind of imagine these two different groups, those of the pro-Levite and those of the pro-Aaronid, uh, kind of imagining stories in this way and say, I know, let's tell that story where Aaron doesn't look so good. That's going to help support our claim to the priesthood. 
all of this might seem uh, a little strange in, in many regards and, and uh, outdated, but I will say that the church has always been in the business of quarreling about who can and who cannot serve as ministers, as ordained uh, priests or pastors. In the Catholic tradition, which I come from, uh, in my Italian roots, uh, and in many Protestant traditions today, of course, the priesthood is restricted based on gender. Only men can serve as priests. So it's similar to that Old Testament model. Uh, in other traditions, there are, uh, there's not just restrictions on gender, but there's restrictions based on sexual orientation. So there are these factors today. It's not genealogy, so we don't say you have to be a son of so-and-so to be a priest. But there are other factors in the contemporary church and throughout church history that have served as dividing lines in terms of who can and who cannot serve as priests. I should say that I'm quite proud to be in a denomination who, does, who looks neither to gender nor sexual orientation as a disqualifier. For ordination. So I'm, I'm proud, I should say openly that I'm proud that I'm in that sort of denomination. Yet conversely, I'm also proud to be in a denomination that has some of the highest standards for what it takes to be ordained into the pastorate. So um, I, I put it this way, that the Presbyterian tradition has an open door, but a high bar for ordination. An open door, not based on gender or sexual orientation, but a high bar in terms of the sort of training you had to have received. Not only do you have to have a master's of divinity, you had to have uh, taken and passed Greek and Hebrew. Uh, uh, it's that last part, and passed, that proves to be problematic in, in my experience. Um, uh, so you need that. You need to take several other uh, exams that are quite rigorous at times. Uh, there's other qualifications, and very few denominations have that many qualifications. In fact, the PCUSA, uh, the denomination that this church is in, is one of the only denominations, I don't want to say the only, but it's the only one I know of, that still requires its pastors to take Greek and Hebrew. Uh, the reformers would have turned over in their graves to learn that denominations don't require that any longer. But um, So there's this, there's this tension. Uh, we can still see an equal, uh, kind of an open door to ordination, and yet at the same time have requirements that actually sets a high bar of ordination. Bradley, of course, knows of all of this uh, stuff as well, as does Sarah. Um, and, then, and perhaps a number of others in the room. In the, in, I'll, I'll, add, I'll kind of move towards this last concluding thought then. Um, the other distinctive of the PCUSA, which I actually quite like, is that they understand uh, the, the priesthood. I'm going to say priesthood as kind of what I mean by the ordained ministry. They, they understand it not as an elevated status. So Tony and Rebecca and Connie Lee, as ordained ministers, they are not at a higher status than non-ordained people. This is often in Protestant circles referred to as the priesthood of all believers. That is, in terms of our status, we all share together in having access to Christ. In terms of status, we are all equal. However, in the PCUSA, uh, you can have the same status but still recognize that there's a unique function to the pastor. So the same status but a unique function. Or that is to say, th there are unique things that a pastor does and does not do. And I'll just give you, if you were here at the 9 a.m. service or have watched uh, me in service at other points, I am not ordained. And so when it comes to the communion table and those words of institution are said, um, we, uh, you know, Jesus gathered his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you, you'll notice that I never say them. The pastor that I'm working with in that service says 
those words. That's a, in, in the uh, PCUSA theology and polity, that is understood to be a particular function of the ordained minister. I can preach, I can do liturgy, I can do children's messages, although sometimes I wish that were a unique function of the ordained ministry. Um, but I do all those other things, but I don't say the words of institution. That's a unique function of ordained priests. The other thing, and you would have to be incredibly astute, uh, uh, particularly about what I do in services, you'll notice that I don't do, is I never do the benediction. Uh, I always, even if I preach, I turn that over to the pastor on service. Why do I never do the benediction? Because of this one last thing I want to say about Aaron. In number six, we encounter something called the priestly or the Aaronic blessing. And in this text, God tells Moses to teach Aaron a blessing to say to the people. And in tradition, Jewish and Christian tradition alike, this blessing has been understood as the unique prerogative of an ordained minister. And you know these words, no doubt. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. The brief formula is dense with terminology of blessing, including an assurance of God's protection, favor, and priest. It's probably originally was used in temple services and uttered by the Aaronid priest. I think it's the Aaronid priest at that point. Uh, but it's been used in Jewish and Christ Christian traditions since. Many pastors at the end of the service use the words of Numbers 6, 24 uh, through 26 as the official blessing uh, or benediction to the people, the final words. Now, the one last thing I want to say about this, and I'll get you out of here on this, is that there's something else interesting about this verse. Those few lines of scripture are actually the oldest artifactual evidence we have of the Bible uh, in the world. Those words from uh, Numbers 6, 24 to 26 were found on a silver amulet, which you can see here. These little scraps of silver rolled up into the shape of a little uh, amulet. They were found in a tomb just to the east of Jerusalem not long ago, I think, uh, maybe you remember, Lydia, uh, when uh, Kitov Hanon was founded, but I think it was in the 90s or something like that. And they found this artifact in a tomb, and when they unraveled these little silver pieces of paper, they were able to decipher what is Paleo-Hebrew. That is a really ancient way of writing Hebrew. And if you knew that language, you could read this, and you would see that it says the Lord's Prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. These words were buried with someone because there was a sense that these words of blessing somehow would confer God's blessing and favor even in life after death. And they now serve for us as the oldest artifactual evidence. For some of you who know the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is about, um, I don't think I told you where this comes from. It's from the 7th century. So this makes this stuff about 700 years older than the previous oldest artifactual evidence we have of something from the Bible. So this is incredibly old. It attests to the kind of the, the, uh, the historical uh, nature of the priestly blessing. And in my own particular view, it, it bears witness to a unique function of the priesthood that I still think exists today. Thank you very much for being here this morning.